Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. It'll be morning soon, but right now, it's still dark. These days are dark. Over the last 30 years, we've seen four global events change the course of history. The first was the end of the Cold War in 1991. The second was the terrorist attacks of 9-11-2001. The third was the Great Recession of 2008. And the fourth is right now, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. As of this moment, there are 1.4 million confirmed cases of coronavirus disease spread across 212 nations. 85,000 people are dead. We are in the middle of what is now without question the greatest global crisis since World War II. And it's not over yet. We have no proven treatment to cure it no vaccine to prevent it. People in every corner of the world are sheltering in place, self-quarantining, and taking drastic measures to slow the spread of the virus. And there's been some progress, but more people will get it. More people will die. On top of that, almost every policy and practice we put in place to flatten the curve has far-reaching socioeconomic consequences. 16 million Americans have lost their jobs in the last three weeks. Businesses are going bankrupt, industries are collapsing, markets are unpredictable. Everything we do to help this problem, and we have to do it, makes this problem worse. And again, it's not over yet. We don't know what the future holds, but what we do know is that the world as we know it will never be the same. We're gonna lose a lot of people. And for those who make it through, things will never get back to normal. There's a new normal coming. We just don't know what it will look like. How will months of containment in our homes change the way we see the world? the way we see each other? How long will nations stay closed? How long until we can touch again? What does the future look like for education, healthcare, government, and religion? We can speculate, and many are, but we don't know. We know things aren't the way they used to be, but we don't yet know what lies on the other side of this world-changing moment we find ourselves in. We're somewhere in between what was and what's coming. We're in the waiting room and we're afraid. Afraid of the virus itself, afraid of the ways the world is changing, afraid of what we don't know. And while it may not seem like it at first, this is exactly where our story overlaps with the Easter story. We're told in the gospel accounts 
that for the people who were there on the first Easter Sunday morning, it too was a day marked by panic, confusion, and fear. In Matthew 28, we read that it was dawn of the first day when those two women, who just three days earlier had been there and seen Jesus die in a public execution, are now coming to visit the grave where he had been buried. They're coming to mourn and care for Jesus' dead body. But when they get there, they find that the gravestone has been rolled away. And there's this angelic being that tells them, Jesus isn't here. They look into the grave and it's empty, just as the angel said. Jesus' body is gone and he's nowhere to be found. And how do these two women react to this moment? The first 10 verses of Matthew 28 contain the word afraid four times. The women, just like you or I would be, are terrified. And not just because there's a talking angel, although he seems pretty used to that reaction, but because the body of their friend, their rabbi, their Messiah is gone and they don't know what happened to him. So they know that the tomb is empty, but they don't know where Jesus is. They haven't seen him. They can't find him. All they know is that he isn't where they thought he would be. So on that very first Easter, there's a period of time between the moment Jesus' disciples realize his tomb is empty and the moment when they actually see the risen Christ. They can speculate, but they don't know. They're somewhere in between what was and what's coming. They're in the waiting room and they're afraid. By the way, there have always been two pieces of evidence upon which Christians have based their belief in the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. The first is the fact that the tomb was empty. If anyone in the first century wanted to dispute the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead, that should have been really easy if all you had to do was go to the tomb and show that Jesus' body was still there. That shuts down resurrection rumors pretty quick. But no one in the biblical accounts or other historical accounts we have even attempts to do that. There seems to have been pretty strong consensus, even among Jesus' haters, that he was no longer in the grave where they had buried him. You know, what's interesting is I was in Israel about this time a year ago, and there are several different places in or around Jerusalem that they think might be the historical location of Jesus' garden tomb. But the truth is, no one really knows. And if you're like me on a Christian pilgrimage, that's kind of disappointing at first. Like, how cool would it be to know for sure that the tomb you're looking at is the very same one Jesus had been buried in? But then you start to realize, isn't it weird that we don't know where the most famous and influential human being who ever lived is buried? I mean, we measure time according to before and after his life. You would think they would have memorialized and shrined and 
preserved his gravesite. But no one really knows exactly where Jesus was buried, which is crazy because we know exactly where Abraham was buried in the West Bank. There have been wars fought over Abraham's tomb. We know the exact Chinese cemetery where Confucius was buried and he died in 479 BC. You can visit the Green Dome in Medina and see the exact place where Muhammad was laid to rest. These are considered holy sites. And yet, we don't know for sure where Jesus was buried. And one explanation for that might be that his tomb was empty. But of course, an empty tomb isn't enough evidence to conclude that someone who died came back to life. If we just had an empty tomb, there could be any number of explanations for what happened to Jesus' body. Even his disciples' first thought was that somebody had stolen it. Sometimes as modern readers, we tend to think of characters in Bible stories as being simple, primitive, gullible people. But while they may not have had all the science and technology we have, they knew that dead people stay dead. An empty tomb doesn't prove resurrection. And they didn't jump to that conclusion very easily. But there's a second piece of evidence that we base our belief on. And that is the numerous reported sightings of Jesus after his death and burial. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes that Jesus appeared first to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living. Paul's reminding his readers that it wasn't just one or two people that claimed to see Jesus back from the dead. There were hundreds. And Paul tells the Corinthians that if they're skeptical, most of those witnesses are still alive and they can ask them themselves. So the post-Easter appearances of Christ are pretty central to the Christian belief in resurrection. Of course, if we just had the reported appearances, it wouldn't be hard to disregard them as conspiracy or lies or hallucinations and just go dig up Jesus' body. But an empty tomb, plus hundreds of sightings, is pretty hard to explain away. This is why, as followers of Jesus, we hold to a literal bodily resurrection, not just some kind of spiritual or metaphorical resurrection. If all we had was sightings, then we could say it was a spiritual resurrection, but the tomb is physically empty. That means we're dealing with something else. And that's where we find our two women back in Matthew 28. The tomb is empty, but Jesus isn't there. They know he's not where he was, but they don't know where he is. That's a moment that's marked by the presence of conflicting emotions. It can be confusing to have two opposing feelings at once, but it happens all the time. When you love someone who doesn't love you back, you feel affection for them, and you also feel hurt by their rejection. When your friend announces that they're engaged or pregnant or being promoted, you really are excited for them, and you might also be afraid that it's never gonna be your turn. 
When you think back to the hardest or loneliest times of your life and realize how much stronger or wiser you are because of it, you might feel woeful and grateful at the same time. Life's most significant moments are often marked by the presence of conflicting emotions. And that's exactly how Matthew 28 describes what these women were feeling when the tomb was empty, but they couldn't find Jesus. In verse 8, it says, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. Afraid, yet filled with joy. Conflicting emotions that shouldn't go together. But that's what happens in the waiting room. Between the empty tomb and the appearance of Christ. Between the way things used to be and the way things are going to be. I've found that in that space between yesterday and tomorrow, the unlikely companions of fear and joy often accompany one another. We're afraid, yet we're filled with joy. So as Christians, our understanding of reality requires us to be able to hold seemingly conflicting ideas at the same time. For example, we believe that God is both three and one, that Jesus is both God and man, that we are both sinners and saints, that the kingdom of God is both here and it's still coming. Or think about some of Jesus' teachings, that the first shall be last, that the least shall be greatest, that only those who lose their lives will find them. So if we're going to be Christian, we need to be able to embrace mystery and paradox and tension. We need to learn how to hold opposing ideas and tend to conflicting emotions simultaneously. So here's what I'm trying to show you. Most of us spend our lives trying really hard to avoid the kinds of situations that require us to live in two places at the same time. We don't enjoy living in the time between the times. No one hangs out in the waiting room for fun. But think about it like this. What is it about the sunrise? Why are we drawn to it? Why do we like it? I think it's because we can relate to it. Sunrise is a daily display of our reality. It's no longer night, but it's not yet day. It's a time between the times. It's two things at once. And here's the thing, it's beautiful. If there was only a sunrise once a year, we would never miss it. We'd be throwing huge annual sunrise parties. We would have concerts and festivals and feasts to celebrate it. Of course, the reason we don't is because the sun rises every day. It always does. The sun's going to rise whether anyone's watching or not. It's going to keep being beautiful even when no one's looking. And when the sun rises, it rises for everyone. What time of day was it 
when Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. It was dawn on the first day of the week. It was sunrise, the beginning of a new day, a new week, and ultimately a new reality. This is why for centuries, followers of Jesus have embraced the sunrise as a symbol of Easter. Just like the same sun we watched set into the earth last night is now rising again, so in the resurrection of Christ do we see the dawning of a new world rising up from within the old one. And here's the paradox. The old world didn't disappear when the new one showed up. Both worlds still exist. And as Christians, we're called to live in both places at the same time. We are the people of the new creation who are firmly planted within this one. And we believe that one day Jesus will return and make all things new. But in the meantime, the church is called to live in this world as an embassy of the world that is to come. Our job is to anticipate and announce the future arrival of God's kingdom that's already begun. So what kind of people does the world need most during a global pandemic? The world needs Easter people. People whose fear is filled with joy. The Christians don't claim to be better than anyone else. We know that's not the case. We're simply those who have been woken up early. We are experiencing a taste of the world that is to come while living in the old. C.S. Lewis once wrote that he believed in Christianity in the same way he believed that the sun had risen. Not only because he could see it, but because by it he could see everything else. The sun has risen. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Right now it's still dark, but soon it will be morning. Come on your smile